the end of the war may come soon, and that once more we may know peace on earth. May the men who fly this night be kept safe in thy care, and may they be returned safely to us. We shall go forward trusting in thee, knowing that we are in thy care now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Scientists, British and American, have made the atomic bomb at last. The first one was dropped on a Japanese city this morning. It was designed for a detonation equal to 20,000 tons of high explosives. That's 2,000 times the power of one of the RAF's 10-ton bombs of orthodox design. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? of August the 6th, 1945, the most fearsome weapon in the history of warfare was unleashed on the city of Hiroshima in Japan. This atomic bomb, with an explosive force of 20,000 tons of TNT, was dropped on Hiroshima by a B-29 Air Force bomber, the Enola Gay. On board was a crew of 12, including the pilot Paul Tibbets, bombardier Thomas Ferriby, and navigator Theodore Dutch Van Kirk. For Dutch Van Kirk, this story of his flight into history began in the fall of 1944, when he was summoned to a new top-secret project with the codename Silverplate. Well, my assignment in that particular group, uh, I think, was because of my past associations with uh, Paul Tibbetts uh, in uh, England and African flying B-17s over there. Uh, Paul and uh, Tibbetts, Tom Ferriby and I had flown together over there a lot. Uh, we've been shot at a lot and, and uh, endured a lot and in the way of enemy action. And uh, so I think Paul had uh, confidence and, uh, and uh, Tom Ferriby and me, and he got us into the group as group, uh, bomb, uh, group bombardier, in Ferriby's case, and group navigator for me. No matter how long it may take us, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. American President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had authorized the building of an atomic bomb in December 1941. The job of building that bomb was codenamed the Manhattan Project, but the Air Force mission to drop the bomb, Silver Plate, came later. And by mid-1945, the commander of this top-secret special unit was ordered to move his equipment and his men to Tinian Island in the Pacific. 
He was told to form a unit that could drop the bombs on either Germany or Japan. But obviously the bomb was not ready in time to uh, use it on uh, Germany. So it was obvious then when we went to Tinian that the, the target was going to be someplace in Japan. Dutch Van Kirk arrived on Tinian in June 1945, having left Travis Air Force Base on the day his son was born. In the coming months, he and his fellow crew members would sharpen their skills by carrying pumpkin-shaped high-explosive bombs to selected targets in Japan. He developed increasing suspicions about his future mission. If you had any scientific training prior to uh, the war, and I did, I had one year of college. I was even at that point, I was uh, planned to be a chemical engineer, and uh, you you had that, and then you remember reading the articles about the potential for atomic weapons uh, in Popular Mechanics. I think there was one, for example. And with given all that, and then you started seeing the people that you were working with, the scientists, uh, Norman Ramsey, for example. I recall that. Uh, when he was around Wendover and everything. And putting the two together, you knew that the probability was that it was an atomic bomb weapon. By July, the Americans on Tinian had 18 B-29s in operation. They prepared and practiced for what the crews were now told would be a special mission to Japan. About this time, we were also given the uh, the target cities of what they were. Uh, they were Hiroshima, of course, Kokura, Nagasaki, and Gitagato in that order. And uh, we were also told what we needed to do when we dropped the bomb. In other words, we needed to drop instruments at the same time uh, by parachute. The instruments were dropped by parachute. Uh, secondly, we were told we had to get pictures of it, uh, with which was the, the, the third airplane. And... Uh, uh, why uh, Hiroshima? I think because Hiroshima was a military, had some mil more military significance than the other two did, and uh, because it was also the headquarters of the uh, military uh, army that was to be the uh, defense of Japan. That was a defense forces for Japan. On July 16, 1945, the first atomic bomb was tested in New Mexico, producing a fireball of horrific proportions. Ten days later, on July 26, the cruiser Indianapolis dropped anchor at Tinian. Two men left the ship by ladder, struggling with a heavy lead bucket containing a slug of uranium-235. A second slug of uranium, needed to complete the explosive elements of the bomb, arrived by plane. On Tinian, the crews were aware that the mission was imminent. Well, I think, uh, yes, we were, because we knew when the bombs arrived on the island, uh, and we knew that everything was ready to go, and all we were waiting for was a final approval. We didn't know it at the time, I don't, at least I didn't, that uh, the final approval was being awaited from uh, the president. And uh, But uh, then finally we got that approval, and uh, we're told that, you know, to make plans to drop it at uh, the earliest opportunity, which to us meant as as soon as the weather was, was good for the flight. The date, Sunday, August the 5th. The clouds that hung over Japan for the past week were beginning to lift. Conditions were go tomorrow the day. 
At noon, a single bomb with an explosive force equivalent to 200,000 conventional bombs was loaded on the Enola Gay. The pilot, Colonel Paul Tibbetts, watched as this bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, entered the plane he had named after his mother. The crew were briefed on the mission ahead. Well, the plan of action was that you'd have uh, three planes out, uh, uh, weather planes out over three of these, these target cities, Hiroshima, Kokura, Nagasaki. Uh, they would leave about an hour ahead of us. And uh, one of the reasons for that, of course, was that uh, many times the uh, uh, one part of Japan would be, uh, the weather would be bad, and the other part it would be uh, per- perfectly clear. We didn't want to go up there and have to fly from one city to the other to find one of them that was clear enough to do the bombing. Uh, so we sent out the weather planes an hour ahead of us. As it turned out, the weather was good at all three cities that day. Uh, these these weather planes would, of course, send back the weather information to us about an hour before we arrived on target. Uh, then the uh, other three planes would take off individually. Ours, the, the uh, plane with a bomb, and then uh, followed by Sweeney and... Uh, uh, Marquart with uh, the uh, instrument plane and the uh, uh, photo plane. Uh, we'd fly individually to Iwo Jima because it was dark, and uh, so then we were going to rendezvous at, Chito- at Iwo Jima, which we did, and then uh, uh, gain our altitude on the way to Japan, then uh, arrive at the target city about 9.15 Tinian uh, time. At 11 p.m. on August the 5th came the final briefing for the crews flying to Japan. Weather reports were issued, radio frequencies assigned, dark goggles handed out, but the words atomic or nuclear were still never mentioned. It was a tense formal briefing on the imminent attack on Japan. The plan of attack was that since uh, generally the the winds from Japan were uh, westerly, why we would bomb on a heading uh, almost due west to 270 degrees, and uh, uh, which would give us, uh, in the event of any, there are any strong winds up there, again, as you often accounted over Japan, uh, uh, it would make the bombing easier, let's put it that way. And uh, that uh, following the dropping of the bomb, we decided that, of course, uh, we were always conscious of the fact we had to put distance between the bomb when it exploded and us. And uh, for that reason, of course, I don't think I'd mentioned that we used what we call stripped-down airplanes, planes that were built specially for us, had no turrets, no guns except the tail guns, uh, and some special features to give us more altitude and speed. And uh, so the minute the bomb uh, was dropped from this westerly heading, we made a right turn of 150 degrees, uh, very as sharp as possible, uh, pushed the throttles forward, lost some altitude to get speed, and just ran away. And that was the plan of attack. At 1.37 on the morning of August the 6th, the three weather planes, Straight Flush, Jabot 3 and Full House, took off for Japan. Colonel Paul Tibbetts was handed 12 cyanide capsules, one for each crew member of the Enola Gay, to be used in the event of capture. The tension was building as departure approached. After the briefing, we did try to go back and stretch out on our bunks and uh, try to get some rest because uh, we had been awake for a long time and uh, we knew that we had a, at least a 12-hour flight coming up uh, uh, and we wouldn't get any sleep the next day, that night the next day. And uh, so I think we all went back, tried to stretch out and get some rest, but uh, none of us could do it. Or, so uh, since we were all in the same Quonset hut and everything, it was easy for us to sit up and 
uh, and uh, get into a game of blackjack, uh, which we played for modest stakes. Uh, and I tell you how, I don't even know if call who won, to tell the truth. But it was just a time passer is what it was, I think. At nine minutes to two, a standby plane, nicknamed Top Secret, took off for Iwo Jima. In the event of mechanical trouble, the crew of the Enola Gay would transfer themselves and the bomb to this aircraft at the rendezvous point. In the meantime, all 12 crew members arrived at the runway to board the Enola Gay. They found the plane bathed in floodlights and surrounded by motion picture cameras and photographers. This wasn't taking a few pictures. This was like a Hollywood premiere, or as uh, Dick Nelson says, looked like a supermarket go- supermarket opening in Southern California. But uh, there were many, many cameras, lots of lights, uh, obviously, for the cameras of those days. And there was a lot of uh, recordings being made, recordings for historical purposes. But a lot of a lot of handheld cameras too. People had their individual cameras and wanted to get uh, their own individual pictures of uh, what was going on. At 2:45 on the morning of August the 6th, 1945, the Enola Gay, with a 9,000-pound bomb and 12 crew members aboard, took off into the tropical night. It was warm and dark. The sky inky black with an hour to go before the moon would appear. Typical night uh, in, on an island over there in the Pacific, you know, over the water at night, you get a lot of build-up of cumulus, uh, small cumulus clouds that generally gather from you know, five to 10,000 feet. And uh, that's about the way it was. And uh, uh, not enough to hurt visibility, not enough to... Uh, block out the stars so I couldn't do any celestial navigation, not enough to, uh, uh, so that you couldn't observe. There was, it was clear night, but with a, some cumul- a small, puffy cumulus clouds build up. Two minutes after the Enola Gay took off, she was followed by the Great Artiste and Number 91, the photographic and scientific planes that would also complete the mission. The Enola Gay headed north by northwest, and within eight minutes, Two crew members entered the bomb bay to insert a slug of uranium and an explosive charge into the core of Little Boy. The bomb was now fully armed. I just remember sitting there thinking, saying, gee, I hope those guys know what they're doing. Uh, but uh, obviously they did, and obviously I had great respect for them, and obviously I couldn't do anything about it if they didn't. So, uh, I'm sure so, you must have been conscious of the, the consequences if there had been an accident. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. But of course, if there had been an accident, why, I don't think it uh, uh, would have been, we'd have had much to be concerned about. It would have been uh, gone. We, we were more concerned uh, in terms of accidents or uh, misgiving what would happen if we had any airplane failure or something of that type. At 5.55, exactly on time, the Enola Gay arrived at Iwo Jima to be joined shortly by the other two planes. The standby bomber, which was now on the ground, was no longer necessary. The Enola Gay could now set course for Japan. My major interest was at how close I was to the ETA when I got there because that told me how good the winds were and everything of that type. And then my second one was, I'd never seen Iwo Jima. I was interested in, you know, what did this island look like, This uh, that island that cost so many lives? 
this little very tiny piece of real estate out there and everything. And so I was uh, looking at that, and uh, and you know the way you get a formation and make get get airplanes together is you circle to do it, uh, because the other the other planes cut inside of you and cut a shorter distance if they're trailing you, and I really can't tell you how they got there and everything else, but you know we just once I said one circle and there they were, uh, they were on our wings and uh, we were all set to go. The rising sun flowed red as the Enola Gay left Iwo Jima heading northwest to Japan. The plane climbed slowly to 30,000 feet, awaiting communication from the weather planes ahead. I think that we were about an hour out uh, up there when we got the message from uh, uh, Etherly's airplane that uh, uh, the target or the weather at Hiroshima was clear, visibility was unlimited, uh, no clouds uh, or no problems of any type. So uh, when we got that message, why, Paul just says, well, it's Hiroshima. The city of Hiroshima woke to a bright sunny morning on August the 6th, the silence only interrupted by an air raid alert caused by the American weather plane. But that alert had ended. Our aiming initial point was a point about 12 miles east of Hiroshima, and that's a point we approached on our northerly, north, north northwesterly heading, and made a right turn to a heading of about. Uh, I tried to hit 270. It was actually about 268 or something like that. And uh, oh, they got the initial point. Uh, and actually, I made a bigger, more longer bomb run than what we uh, had uh, planned on because everything was going so smoothly. And uh, uh, I get, uh, I think uh, somebody kidded me a little bit. They says, "Well, you're a little bit early, so you wanted to kill some time. That's why you made it longer." But uh, we sat on a very long bomb run. Uh, we were on that bomb run uh, going into Hiroshima for five minutes or so. If we'd ever sat on a bomb run like that over Europe, they'd have blasted us out of the sky. The Enola Gay approached Hiroshima at 330 miles an hour, flying at over 30,000 feet. The bombardier, Tom Ferriby, identified the T-shaped bridge that was his target for attack. Dutch Van Kirk came forward to the cockpit to cross-check that target. To make doubly sure, the way we did almost everything on this mission, why well, I came up, uh, looked over Tom Ferriby's shoulder, and we talked about it, and we had, the t- we had the luxury also of having the time to do all this without anybody shooting at us. And, uh, but Tom and I, had, uh, had, we had picked out the wrong target one time flying B-17, so just to be doubly, doubly sure why I went up, we looked over his shoulder, identified the city, identified the aiming point, the target bridge. He had already picked it up and everything, but we missed. We double-checked everything uh, that way. And then after that was all done, why well, I just went back and sat down. At 9.15 plus 17 seconds Tinian time, the bomb bay doors of the Enola Gay snapped open and the world's first atomic bomb dropped clear of the plane. It would take 43 seconds to fall six miles to its target below. 
Well, when the bomb leaves the airplane, that's the effect of, uh, you know, you draw, suddenly dropped about uh, 94, 9,500 pounds from this plane, and the plane obviously lifted and uh, soared a little bit, and uh, but and almost immediately, or as fast as he could, why Paul took over the uh, uh, manual control. See, when you're on the bomb run, you're on automatic uh, or automatic pilot with the bomb site is actually flying the airplane. The bomb site with the bombardier putting data into it. So as, uh, as soon as the bomb left, why uh, Paul took over manual control, which is just flipping a switch, and turned uh, to a sharp right bank and a sharp 150-degree turn to where we could start putting distance between us and the bomb. In the first millisecond after 9.16, the atom bomb exploded just short of 2,000 feet above Hiroshima. A pinprick of purplish red light expanded to a glowing fireball with a temperature of 50 million degrees centigrade at its core. At the Shima clinic directly beneath the bomb, temperatures reached several thousand degrees centigrade. Hiroshima was a boiling inferno. What we saw in the airplane was a bright flash of light, much like a photographer's bulb going off in a, in a small room. Uh, we saw this in spite of the fact that uh, uh, the B-29 had almost no windows facing uh, the, the, the point of explosion. Uh, it, had, it had no windows facing the point of the explosion, the tail gunners, uh, except for the tail guns. And uh, we, and we also saw it in spite of the fact that uh, we were wearing goggles, which were supposed to have been turned to extinction. Mine apparently weren't. Uh, Ferby forgot to put his on. Paul put, put his on, but then found saw he couldn't fly the airplane, so he took them off right away. And uh, but uh, everybody, in spite of the, whether they had their goggles on or off, or what degree of extinction they had them set to, saw this bright flash in the airplane. So, obviously, we knew that the bomb had exploded. We did not hear anything at that point. Uh, shortly thereafter, and I'm not sure how many seconds it was, but it was uh, uh, probably on the order of 10, 15, something of that type. It wasn't long. Uh, the plane jumped, kind of felt that it was a bump, and this, this was audible, too. It sounded like a, uh, the plane had uh, sounded like a piece of sheet metal snapping. And this was the first shock wave that hit. Um, we laugh that this shock wave has gotten much stronger in the, in the past 50 years than it was originally. It really wasn't that strong. And uh, uh, one of us, and I'm not sure which one, Paul, Tom, or me, I know it wasn't me, it was either Paul or Tom, how it called out flak. Because if that's what it felt like, it felt like a very close burst of flak when we were flying B-17s. And, uh, of course, uh, uh my comment was, by, at the time, when I heard it, I thought, well, gee, where's it coming from? It, they, they didn't have anything, well, I didn't think, that could reach that altitude, especially in that location. Tail gunner immediately called and said, no, it wasn't flak, it was a shock wave, and here comes another one. Another one hit us, smaller intensity, and uh, so after we were sure we weren't going to get, get any more of those shock waves, why, we just made a left turn to turn around, look at, so we could look down and see what had happened because we had no visibility of the target from the direction we were flying. 
It was a warm, calm morning. I heard the drone of the plane overhead. I was about to go out and look for it, when suddenly there was a blinding yellow light. In the city of Hiroshima, 80,000 people died instantly and two-thirds of all buildings were immediately destroyed. The city was a bubbling mass of devastation. There was also complete darkness, caused, I think, by the great cloud of dust sucked up by the explosion. The sun was blotted out. A firestorm raged throughout the city. Men's caps were etched onto their scalps. Women had their kimono patterns imprinted on their bodies. A fierce heat spread through Hiroshima. Fires broke out everywhere for no apparent reason. Those who had barely survived the terrific blast had received terrible burns from the rays and wounds from crashing timbers and glass and masonry. By two o'clock in the afternoon, the city was a sea of raging flames. What we saw was the city of Hiroshima, or where the uh, covered with black smoke, black dust, uh, and everything which had been kicked up, obviously, by the blast. We saw on the edges of that uh, mass of uh, black, which looked like a pot of black boiling tar, we saw several fires burning uh, uh, on the edges of it, uh, where we could see it. And beyond that, we saw the large white cloud sitting on top of that uh, and I'm not sure whether we saw whether that cloud was already starting to break in half or not, but, uh, you know, as it, it was still gaining altitude, and by the time that uh, uh, we left, it, uh, it was up well above our altitude. By that time, I think it was up to 40,000 feet or so. And so it was quite obvious that tremendous amount of energy had been released in order to cause that uh, vertical white cloud to form like that. And... Uh, so uh, various people describe it as the colors they saw in it and everything of this type. For the life of me, I could not tell you what color it was. I know the top was white, and white was the predominant color on top, black and the dust and dirt on the bottom, but in between I couldn't tell you whether it was purple, pink, yellow, or whatever, as some people say. And what exactly was your reaction, your personal reaction? I think our immediate reaction, and my immediate reaction for most of the other people, was that, number one, it did work. You know, that, that was a question on this whole thing. Will, would it really work? There were no big guarantees that it would work. Uh, secondly, uh, we were, I guess, very happy it hadn't damaged the airplane. And uh, uh, then thirdly, it was a sense of relief that we had, in fact, carried out the mission that was expected of us with uh, maybe it was just a matter of relaxation now and everything of that type. Following the circling of Hiroshima, the Enola Gay turned on its heels, banked south and headed again for Tinian. It left behind a mushroom cloud that soared to 60,000 feet and remained visible to the tail gunner George Caron for the next 360 miles. Colonel Paul Tibbets announced to the crew that the first atomic bomb in history had been dropped and the co-pilot, Bob Lewis, wrote in his log, My God. Logs were filled, a strike report was filed and the Enola Gay returned to base. Uh, the trip home, I think there was a lot of chatter going on in the airplane about uh, uh, what had happened, uh, that uh, you know this would could could probably mean the end of the war, various things of that type. 
But again, uh, the navigator always seems to be the busiest guy on the airplane at uh, flights like this. So uh, uh, that was that was my job. And you know, we did tell the tail gunner, for example, to let me know when the uh, when he could no longer see the white cloud. And I made notes of that in the log and made calculated a distance at which it uh, uh, we could no longer see it and uh, things of that type. But that trip home was a bit faster because we were letting down from high altitude, and we now knew that we had plenty of gas and everything, so we could uh, use more uh, use more of it. And we made it pretty uh, got home as fast as we could. But uh, again, we were all you have to understand too. We we're all very we were dead tired by this this time. Uh, uh, we were coming home like. Uh, 11, 12 o'clock, uh, and we had been up since 8 o'clock the previous day. So uh, we were all getting just kind of dead tired as, as well as being a, a sense of relief. But were you conscious that something momentous had actually happened, something no. terribly important? No, we were not conscious that something momentous would uh, had happened. And people say, you know, a lot of people say now, well, how does it feel to be a part of making, or have to have, to have made history? Well, you know, I guess if you look back on it, and it did start a new age and this sort of stuff. It started out the Cold War and everything. But I'll be quite honest; I think television might have had more effect on the, on, on humanity than what the atomic bomb did in the long run. At 2.58 p.m. local time, the Enola Gay touched down at Tinian. 200 officers and men were crowded on the tarmac to greet the returning crew. Several thousand more lined the taxiways. There were four-star and three-star generals, well-wishers and backslappers, and the inevitable formalities ensued. Uh, General Spots uh, was there, and... Uh, uh, one of the generals, I think it was General Davies, uh, called attention, which kind of amazed everybody because nobody ever paid attention to the generals <laughs> before. And But at that point, why then General Spots did on the Spots, uh, S-P-A-A-T-Z, did right then give uh, Paul Tibbetts, uh, award him a medal for the Dis Distinguished Service Cross uh, in a just a very brief uh, one- or two-minute uh Thing I think Davies read a citation and Spots gave him the medal, and then back to the, back to the how did it go, what happened, all this sort of stuff, back and forth, and each 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 crew member had maybe his own little knot of people around him asking these questions and everything, uh, until they could get uh, settled down and get us in a vehicle, uh, a truck, as a matter of fact, to take us back up to the debriefing room up uh, uh, up in our headquarters building. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. On the morning of August the 7th, 1945, President Truman, on his way home from the Potsdam Conference, announced the dropping of the atomic bomb. Japanese radio at first downplayed the attack, reporting some damage, but eventually conceded that a new type of bomb was involved. Meanwhile, American reconnaissance reports coming in confirmed the devastating effects of the blast. The first reports were that, you know, there was tremendous damage, tremendous devastation. Essentially, the whole city was destroyed. And uh, then later on, uh, uh, they had reconnaissance photos, which we could look at and everything, and we could see that, yes, essentially the whole city, entire city was destroyed. And were you surprised at that stage by the extent of the damage? Well, I, I guess uh, by this time you'd almost been uh, forewarned that this was what you were going to see and everything of that type. So I, I won't say we were 
surprised, but I think everybody was amazed that one bomb, one weapon could do that, that much damage. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime, Bob Trout reporting. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. That's the word we've just received from the White House in Washington. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. The Japanese surrender in World War II became known to the American public on the afternoon of August the 14th, 1945. It was eight days after Hiroshima and five days after a second atomic bomb had been dropped on Nagasaki. Then, in September, Tibbets, Ferriby and Van Kirk returned to Japan. They visited Tokyo, flew over Hiroshima and went on to Nagasaki to inspect the damage. I think by this time we pretty much expected what we saw because the, the people who, uh, uh, you know, the, the flyovers, the reconnaissance uh, photographs and everything pretty much showed us the same thing. You know, bridges dislocated, railroad t- railroads uh, dislocated, buildings uh, leaning over, that sort of thing. Was it in any way a moving experience for you? Well, I think you, again, I, I, you look at it and you say, was all this necessary? You know, going back, and it was, yes, it was necessary, I think, to end the war, but, you know, was it all necessary? Did we have to start from the word go at, at Pearl Harbor to have caused all this? And, you know, it's like so many things out there. The the Bataan Death March, uh, you know, I lost two brother-in-laws uh, uh, in that war over there, one in Bataan and one at the uh, invasion of Macon Island. And, you know, you just look back on it and say, you know, what did anybody gain from it? And uh, is this going to be the uh, the future of uh, of warfare? And if it is, I don't want to be involved in it, I can assure you. The Prime Minister, the Right Honorable C.R. Attlee. Japan has today surrendered. The last of our enemies is laid low. With the end of the war in 1945 came widespread international euphoria. In Britain, Clement Attlee addressed a public generally uncritical of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The American public also strongly supported the bombings as they celebrated the end of the war. But gradually, as the gruesome details emerged, America began to feel queasy. In 1946, the New Yorker published a detailed account of the ordeal of six survivors which had a major national impact. A scientist who worked on the Manhattan Project wrote that he was filled with shame. And so began a controversy on whether the atom bombs should ever have been dropped on Japan. I'm thoroughly convinced that the Japanese military who were in charge would not have agreed to uh, unconditional surrender as quickly as they did if the bombs had not been dropped. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, Japan was a defeated nation uh, prior to that uh, that time. There was absolutely no question that Japan was going to have to capitulate one way or another, either through something dramatic like these atomic bombs or, uh, or dramatic and devastating, or by, uh, as a result of an invasion where you have to really almost dig them out one by one, or whatever. There was absolutely no question that Japan would have been forced to capitulate at one time or another. And then, of course, with the Russians coming into the war and everything, that was another matter. And, of course, so what they wanted to do was to reach a negotiated settlement, which would allow them to keep their large land armies, which they had on the, ma- on the mainland, and which was the real reason for the insistence on unconditional surrender. But I think that the war would have continued for some period of time, beyond August the 15th, if the bombs had not been used. And do you think it was a justifiable price to pay? 
I think it, I really believe that the price paid by the people of Hiroshima saved lives overall. Because if, if the bombs had not been used, if Japan had not capitulated, not accepted unconditional surrender, then all the wartime activities that were taking place would have continued. The firebombs that had continued costing probably more lives, in my opinion, than what were caused at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, lost at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The, the bombing raids would continue, continuing more American lives. Uh, the, the kamikazes would have continued attacking the destroyers and with the Okinawa and everything. This is all with not even considering what the, an invasion would have cost. So this, you take the sum total of that when you balance the, uh, the, the uh, saving of lives by those means versus the loss of life at the city of Hiroshima. In the decades to come, there were many rumours regarding the fate of the Enola Gay crew. There were reports that Paul Tibbets was insane with remorse and committed to a psychiatric hospital. Tom Ferriby, it was said, had joined a monastery. Another report said one crew member had cataracts as a result of radiation exposure. There were many, many rumours, many reports, all of them untrue. I had heard rumours, and, and people had made comments, that the Eastern Bloc nations... Uh, had put out uh, the stories that we had all gone crazy because give, trying to give the impression that only the, that this country could only get crazy people to do that sort of thing. And I never believed them until uh, 1992. I was in Wichita, Kansas at an air show. Uh, the fact that we were going to be there had been on television, and uh, a, a gentleman and his wife came up to us with a young man, uh, 16 to 17 years old, and uh, they told us, they said, we had to bring this young man out to meet you. He's an exchange student from Czechoslovakia. And when he heard on television that you people were going to be here at this air show, uh, he said, how can that be? They all went crazy. And he said, and then so obviously we talked to the, uh, the uh, young boy, uh, young man uh, for a time, spoke a good, very good English, and he said, no, he said, this is what they were taught in their schools uh, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia. So apparently there was something to it, but uh, there are many, many rumors. Maybe, hey, maybe I've, maybe, maybe I've acted crazy at times, but I don't think I ever was. Never had the need of a psychiatrist or anything. Following the war, navigator Dutch Van Kirk left the American Air Force and returned to college. He won a master's degree in chemical engineering and went on to work for the DuPont Corporation until he retired. He is now 74 and lives in California. The pilot, Paul Tibbets, remained in the Air Force, becoming, at the age of 50, a brigadier general. He subsequently retired to work as president of an executive jet company. Bombardier Tom Ferriby also remained in the Air Force but eventually retired selling real estate in Florida. He recently died. They were once known as Tibbet's crew, a close-knit team which over the years had no regrets for their role at Hiroshima. I honestly believe that uh, the use of these two bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki showed people how horrible they could be and that it really tempered people's thinking during the Cold War that to, the, to where the... no. Nobody was ever going to, uh, nobody was willing to start a war where they would be employed. Uh, my biggest fear now is that uh, some of the less responsible people might get their hands on nuclear weapons and employ them. Uh, but I, to the, unless something like that happens, why I think the biggest uh, uh, fears of nuclear war are, are behind us now. 
Today, the city of Hiroshima is rebuilt with a population three times its size in August 1945. The atomic blast it experienced still echoes half a century later, with some claiming the act was unnecessary and immoral, others arguing that it ended the war, saving countless lives. For the crew of the Enola Gay, the ensuing years have brought honours and tributes, controversy and condemnation, each from a public responding to their role on August the 6th, 1945, as messengers of a war god more fearsome and destructive than ever before in history. I don't think it's affected my life or changed my life. I've not uh, had uh, any remorse about it. I uh, have felt that it was uh, a justifiable act uh, at the time, and I still do. And uh, it, it has not bothered me in any way, shape, or form. And from your own point of view, would you do it all over again yourself? Under the same circumstances. And that's the key there. They are the key words. Under the same circumstances... I would not hesitate for a minute to do it again. Today the guns are silent. A great tragedy has ended. A great victory has been won. The skies no longer rain death. The seas bear only combat. Men everywhere walk upright in the sunlight. The entire world lies quietly at peace. The holy mission has been completed. We have known the bitterness of defeat and the exaltation of triumph. And from both, we have learned there can be no turning back. We must go forward to preserve in peace what we won in war. <laughs> 